Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a guest to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about for any reason. We'll talk about what excites us, what delights us, maybe what frustrates us, and we'll follow the poem and the conversation wherever they turn. Afterward, we will have a little bit of silliness because I can't help myself. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest Amit Majmadar. Amit is the author of four collections of poetry, including 2020's What He Did in Solitary. A fifth collection is scheduled to be released in 2026. He's also the author of two books of nonfiction, both from 2023, Black Avatar and other essays, which I believe is published with Acre Books. It is, yes. I, I have a fondness in my heart for Acre because I used to work for the Cincinnati Review, which Acre grew yes, out of. Yes, yes. So. I'm, I'm publishing another book with them uh, in 2024. So I, I saw that. That's the great game, right? Great game, yeah. He's also published four novels, most recently 2022's The Map and the Scissors, which centers on the 1947 partition of India, and a children's book. And that's not all, but I don't want to take up too much of his time, because after all, he has to get work later at his regular job as a radiologist, which is mind-blowing to me, the publication record and working as a radiologist. They're two very different kinds of stress. But Amit, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you for having me. So I saw on Twitter, before we get to the poem, that you solicited suggestions for poems to talk about, and you ended up bringing in The Lie by Sir Walter Raleigh, but you seemed very excited by another Raleigh poem, Sir Walter Raleigh to his son. And I'm just curious why you switched from one to the other, because I was mentally preparing for To His Son. Basically, what was interesting is that I knew that sonnet that was recommended by actually my cousin's son. That was my cousin's son, who uh, is a physicist. And I was also reads Dostoevsky and, and Nietzsche and everything. And he also reads poetry. So he basically proposed that poem, which I thought very few people knew about. And so I, I kind of remembered loving that sonnet a couple years ago when I was going through Sir Walter Raleigh's uh, collected poems. And I was pretty certain that I was going to choose that one. But then I was clicking around Sir Walter Raleigh's Poetry Foundation page. And I remembered the lie, which I also really like. And I also remember there's this other poem called The Lie by Don Patterson, who's a contemporary Scottish poet, which I also love. I can read this one and I should probably also read the Don Patterson one because it's it's actually, I just remember that that one's a great one too with the exact same title. And and so anyway, Sir Walter Raleigh, I, I ended up settling on Sir Walter Raleigh because I think he's a very underrated poet. And I think that he has this one poem that's like the passionate shepherd to his uh, mistress or something. And... Like that one's the one that everyone uh, anthologizes. And like, I feel like I've read that a, like a bunch of times, but mm -hmm. in his lesser known poems, there's a lot of gems. There's a lot of gems in there. And, and he also has a very interesting life. You know, I'm going to be reading his biography written by someone named Anna Beer that I found. Um, there's, there's an audiobook of that that I'm going to be getting into very shortly. So yeah, I ended up picking, I ended up reading a bunch of Sir Walter Raleigh poems. And I thought this one was kind of interesting because it's so musical Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's very worldly and it, and it has a, an attitude to it that is not typically found in poetry so much, uh, which is kind of like, you know, you know, tell them off, you know what I'm saying? Give them the lie. Well, I, I'm, I love this poem now. I, I'm glad that you chose it because if I read it, it was a long time ago. And so I was very, very happy to read it. And before I ask you to read it, I will just briefly explain the phrase give you the lie what that means only because the way that i learned it is i think pretty amusing i had to read montaigne for an undergraduate class however long ago and we had read of giving the lie and in the essay it's there's not really enough context to understand the phrase and so 
when we were in class discussing it, the professor asked if we knew what that meant. And so we all looked blank faced. And then I was sitting nearest him. So he stood up and he yelled, I give you the lie. And he mimed slapping me with a glove. And he said, is that clear? And we all just kind of looked both uh, blank faced and a little stunned. And then he just yeah. had to explain that it means accusing someone of lying. <laughs> accusing someone of lying. And you know, I also like the the idea of a poem being built on a very, I guess, I don't know if colloquial is the correct phrase, but give someone the lie is at once, it's sort of like, if you know, you know, it's kind of like that, that's the sort of aspect to it. And I think that in a lot of contemporary writing, especially prose writing, people are always writing for a global audience and they want those types of unusual phrases to be kind of ironed out. And I think that when you're, when a book goes through the editorial process, a lot of times editors will be like, well, this phrase is not unfamiliar or this phrase is going to be confusing to people. You rephrase it in a way that's more instantly comprehensible. And that has to do with the global nature of the English language and how all those little local idiosyncrasies get ironed out, right? And one of the things I found most charming about this poem is that it's this very, very old phrase that doesn't make sense immediately, to be honest with you. And it's not intuitive. It's not intuitive. It's kind of if you know, you know, and or you have to look it up and find it. Oh, that's what that means. And I like how the poem is built on that because in a sense, it's like 400 years old. But at the same time, there's like a subset of English speakers who know what that means or or have or, you know, understand that. And and so that was one of the one of the selling points for the poem that I like. I like local idiosyncrasies in poems, linguistic idiosyncrasies. I like that a lot. Absolutely the same here. I'll go ahead and ask you to read the poem and we'll we'll talk more about it because I have I have lots to say about what you just said. But go ahead, take it away whenever you're ready. This is The Lie by Sir Walter Raleigh. Go, soul, the body's guest, upon a thankless errand. Fear not to touch the best. The truth shall be thy warrant. Go, since I needs must die, and give the world the lie. Say to the court, it glows and shines like rotten wood. Say to the church, it shows what's good and doth no good. If church and court reply, then give them both the lie. Tell potentates, they live acting by others' action. Not loved unless they give, not strong, but by a faction. If potentates reply, give potentates the lie. Tell men of high condition that manage the estate. Their purpose is ambition, their practice only hate. And if they once reply, then give them all the lie. Tell them that brave it most, they beg for more by spending, who in their greatest cost seek nothing but commending. And if they make reply, then give them all the lie. Tell zeal it wants devotion, tell love it is but lust, tell time it is but motion, tell flesh it is but dust, and wish them not reply, for thou must give the lie. Tell age it daily wasteth, tell honor how it alters, tell beauty how she blasteth, tell favor how it falters, and as they shall reply, give everyone the lie, tell wit how much it wrangles in tickle points of niceness, 
tell wisdom, she entangles herself in overwiseness. And when they do reply, straight give them both the lie. Tell physic of her boldness, tell skill it is pretension. Tell charity of coldness, tell law it is contention. And as they do reply, so give them still the lie. Tell fortune of her blindness, tell nature of decay. Tell friendship of unkindness, tell justice of delay. And if they will reply, then give them all the lie. Tell arts they have no soundness, but vary by esteeming. Tell schools they want profoundness, and stand too much on seeming. If arts and schools reply, give arts and schools the lie. Tell faith it's fled the city. Tell how the country erreth. Tell manhood shakes off pity. Tell virtue least preferreth. And if they do reply, spare not to give the lie. So when thou hast, as I commanded thee, done blabbing, although to give the lie deserves no less than stabbing, stab at thee he that will, no stab the soul can kill. Oh, I love this poem. I can't stop going back to the line, tickle points of niceness. Yes, I noticed that one as I was reading it. And I also think like, tell arts and schools like that that stands as a nice one too for uh being in the in the in the world of you know the poetry business you know what i'm saying like <laughs> it's it's just great there's so many ways you can apply individual ones individual stanzas of that to different elements of the modern world i think what was interesting is i was as i was you know writing up script for the episode and taking notes i thought i'm not sure we need to even give a gloss on this poem which with to his son, I felt there was probably you know be useful to give a sort of paraphrase, but the language is so straightforward and still almost all in circulation that other than sort of giving a bit of a gloss just in terms of, you know, it's it's to some extent scorched earth, you know, it's the church, yeah. the government, high morals and virtue, anything that is sort of wrapped in any sort of authority or virtue, even something like wit and wisdom, basically is calling a lie. It's basically so, the most, one of the more anti-authoritarian poems, you know, of that you can find where it's, it's basically just blasting it all, you know, it's blasting it all. I kind of like that about it. I like that about it too. And what's interesting is I've been teaching writing classes for so long now that one of the things I say every semester is that rants are really tedious to read most of the time. And what? This, I think, for various reasons, I don't find it tedious to read, in part because it's not its not just a rant. Right. Uh, but I'm curious about you, what gives it that livelihood? So it, even though it's anti-authoritarian, it's still so lively. Right. I think that I think that there are a few things that play into that. One is the fact that it's in rhyme, right? And, and the lines are not overly long. They're short lines, and they all rhyme really fast. The rhymes come very, very fast, right? A, B, A, B, C, C. And I think that... Part of the problem with rants is that they're in prose and they're and they're long-winded. Okay. And it's almost as though when we say the word rant, we're almost implying that it's some something that's just going on and someone's ranting about, ranting on about it. And it's gonna be in prose, it's gonna be long-winded, it's gonna be redundant, and it's just gonna keep going on, maybe. And I think that with this poem, uh, it's very much a poem. It's unabashedly a poem. I think the other the other element is that it's not very specific. And so there are rants 
I think you really call them rants, even though they're adverse in parts of Dante, right? Where he goes off against some ruler that you've never heard of, some pope you've never heard of. And, I, and to me, at least, to me personally, even when I, you know, look into the history of Guelphs and Ghibellines and I kind of find out exactly what he's specifically referring to, those parts don't really hit that well for me and they don't land for me. And and they're, they're I'm just kind of getting get through them. And I, you know, I understand that he's a very religious person. He's a very political person. I'm the same way. And I understand that. And I, and at the same time, when he's we're talking about these political elements or political issues of his day, church issues of his day, it just doesn't travel well through all these centuries. Whereas with this poem, it's written, it's not written that much after Dante. It's about, you know, 200, 300 years after Dante, but it's still 400 years from us, right? And nonetheless, this somehow works better because it's more general. He's not, he's not naming yeah. names. And, you know, a lot of times we're taught in writing classes to be as specific as possible and to be, oh, you know, you want to get as much detail, you want to make it very, you, you know, there's, you, there's universality in the, in the specific. That's a, a very typical writing class piece of advice. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. And that's one of the terrible things about writing advice is that it can be wrong or it can be right, depending. I think this poem in particular, because of its generality, manages to survive the centuries intact. I think that's a large part of it. I really like that. In part, there's something about the breadth of it that is is so impressive, that it moves from church to state to virtues. And yeah. so there's the surprise of finding something in the wit and wisdom. And I feel like the more I spend time with the poem, the more I feel like there's something devastating about it for the right. speaker. It would be easy to say, well, you're just cynical. You're dismissing everything. But he's implicated in that when he gets to, you know, dismissing wit right. and wisdom. You know, it's in the form of the poem. And of course, it's framed by, you know, I needs must die. You go forward and do this because I can't. I would die. The Thank body would die. And so there's this kind of helplessness that goes along with it as well. It's not, I feel like it's almost not a rant. It's more a, an expression of a state of mind. And yes. and I think that's one of the things that poems are are so good at doing. And and so even though it takes the form of um, basically a flighting of, you know, in the old, you know, there's that term flighting, which is a type of like uh, where you're kind of just insulting all these different things, right? You're, you're verbally abusing all these things. He's verbally abusing all these things, but it comes from a state of mind, you know, and that's why perhaps why it's so broad spectrum. It's a disillusionment with the world. And that's a very familiar and very poetic, very, uh, you know, with a lot of poetic potential to it. You know, it's it, that idea, yeah. the disillusionment with the world. It has a lot of poetic potential. And I think that this poem is more an expression of this very, very powerful emotional state and mental state than it is necessarily a specific critique of any of these things, you know? And also that that disillusionment with the world, I think in the case of the speaker is disillusionment with himself. Like when he's running down the arts while writing a poem hey. or, or speaking in the form of the poem, there is that self-reference. But it doesn't it doesn't come off as jokey. Right. And and at the same time and at the same time, I feel like, you know, you can relate it to his life because if I recall, he was, you know, he was a favorite of the Queen and he he had traveled in very, very high circles, right? Very, very esteemed kind of company royal company, I should say. And uh, he didn't necessarily come to a good end. You know, he basically, he was imprisoned and beheaded on in 1618, right? So 
And that was after, you know, some expeditions to the new world. And so I feel like, I don't know, I don't know exactly when he wrote this poem, but I feel like, you know, he was, if he was beheaded on, on October 29th, 1618, I feel like on October 28th, 1618, he could have been writing this poem, if that makes sense. It's fascinating that you mentioned that because there, there's a lore around the poem, which is, and part of it is there is some debate about whether or not he wrote it, but the consensus is that he wrote it. But there's also this idea that he wrote it the night before he was beheaded. There's no evidence for that, but I was doing a little bit of research and found in an abolitionist newspaper in 1840, which by coincidence mentions my tiny rural town, Cortland, that I live in. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's headed with the title, The Errand. And it also says he wrote this the night before he died. And it's in part to sort of express to abolitionist readers the importance of carrying this kind of worldview against against the institution of slavery. I want to come back to the poem. I think part of the reason, one of the reasons I, I love it too and, and feel like it's it's repetitive but not redundant, well, the way that, that rants can be, is that the way that, that refrain comes in, it's different almost every time. Right. But it is particularly what's interesting is that i think the idea that everything should be more specific rather than general is mostly accurate but i find for me it's not specificity quite so much as it's particularity yeah and that sometimes that particularity lives in the phrasing the one that stands out to me is the stanza that begins tell zeal it wants devotion mm-hmm. tell love it is but lust." and this is a bit of a heartbreaking stanza just to deny something like love it's almost there's a moment of kind of self-denial, but for thou must give the lie. And it's the only time the soul, other than the opening line and, and the closing, is mentioned. And there's this, we get that kind of variety throughout, but there's this, you, thou must give the lie. Not go ahead and do it. You, no matter how hard it hurts, right? Yeah. You have to do it. Yeah. And and I, I even like the line is, tell time it is but motion is like really, really weirdly profound, particularly in light of what we know about the cosmos, like expanding in all directions at once, the movement of electrons around a nucleus, all these forms of motion, you know, convection, motion of currents. And then also the way that we know that time changes, you know, based on relativity, time changes if you go into low earth orbit, you know, you age at a different rate. And like, all of those things, I, I just tell time it is but motion is so, so interesting. One of the other ways that it, it seems interesting to me is that the term, the Sanskrit term for the, the cosmos is jagat, which means that which moves. And so it's pretty profound. It, and I think maybe language is just like that when it's reduced to these sort of like powerful sort of broad nouns. Like we were talking about specificity, particularity, time and motion are very, very common nouns. They're very, very, have a very broad meaning, general meaning, and they're used in many different contexts, but then juxtapose them and then just put four words, you know, surround them with four words in the line, tell, it, is, but, you know, all of a sudden it becomes a profound line. And I think that's what poetry can do, where it can take otherwise words that you might not necessarily think have that much potential and then turn it into tell time it is but motion. Yeah, that distillation can be so powerful. And I wonder, just this is pure speculation, but because he had traveled the globe so much and time and motion would have been experienced in a very particular way and and fairly uncommon way in his life, 
imagine him sailing. Yeah, you imagine him sailing to South America, <laughs> right? You know, that's you know, the ocean. And back in those days, it was a long and, you know, it's the time it's potentially deadly endeavor. But, you know, it's a very, very long period of time to be on this ship with, you know, just you and the waves. That's That stanza in particular really gets me in part because it's one of those moments, tell love it is but lust, tell flesh it is but dust, is one of those where he's there's he's entirely implicated as a speaker, as a writer. And that it's, it's moments like that that cut through what I think for some... Yeah. I feel like some readers might see it as cynical, or at least I think when I was, if I had encountered this when I was 18 and loved it, I would have been like, yeah, the world is awful, but it really has something much more moving based on, on the way he structures uh, those things. Cause at first it really is this sort of anti-political, anti-religious screed is not the right word, but it has that kind of force that comes yeah. with it. And, and then as it expands, it really, the emotional tones change so much. I know. I, I guess in retrospect, I should have read it a little bit differently, where you could almost change the tonality from a performance standpoint, I'm saying, where you can begin with a sort of aggressiveness and then kind of towards the end, go a little bit tender and say, tell age, you know, it daily wasteth. Maybe that's something that, you know, in performance could come out. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you say that because the episode that I released today was about uh is about the raven by poe which i hadn't thought about since high school and in part because there's so much repetition in it and the more slowly you go through the poem you hear how how much variation there is in a lot of that of the repetition that at times early on it's this sort of thumbling apologetic repetition it's like oh sorry sorry and then later on it's this expression of like fruitless anger and so it's repetition that really serves different tones and different emotions throughout the poem yeah for sure i did want to bring in since i mentioned montaigne that i did go back to that essay and it turns out thankfully that unlike some montaigne essays is quite short oh, okay, yeah. but it, it made me aware of something I, I hadn't thought about the idea of accusing someone of being a liar as tied to a particular time period of that being particularly charged but in this essay just a, a few excerpts but whom shall we believe when he talks about himself in so corrupt an age, seeing that there are few or none whom we can believe when they speak of others, when there is less incentive for lying? The first stage in the corruption of morals is the banishment of truth. Well, our truth of nowadays is not what is, but what others can be convinced of, which sounds like it could be essentially used today. And then he goes on to say that Men form and fashion themselves for it as for an honorable practice, for dissimulation is among the most notable qualities of this century. And so Montaigne's writing about this as if lying is this relatively recent kind of phenomenon, or at least the way that it is so prominent publicly. You know, I think that maybe that's one of those things where every generation thinks that the past was somehow better. And I feel as though a lot of people, even in our own time, say over the past five to 10 years, have become convinced that we live in a time where, you know, truth means less or truth is manipulated or this or that. When you look at history and even how history itself is written, 
you realize that there's always a narrative being pushed and there's always selective sources and there's selective narratives and the victors write the, the history and this and that. And it may be part of, and you know, that's part of the disillusionment with the world, right? It's part of the disillusionment with the world where, and, and I think that in its purest form, that sense has its manifestation in the idea of the Garden of Eden or in the Indian tradition, the Satya Yuga, which is the age literally of truth, which is, you know, there are basically four different ages and we're in the last one, the most corrupt one. But, uh, and the earlier ones are more virtuous, true, you know, there's more truth, there's more beauty, there's more longer life and this and that. And whether it's that or the Garden of Eden or the Age of Gold in the Greek or Hellenic mythos, there's that sense. And I think that it tracks to every individual's experience of childhood and then maturation into adulthood, where in childhood, ideally, you're in a, in a state of trust. You trust your parents, you trust your elders. You are not equipped yet to truly be cynical, to truly give the lie. As you grow older, you begin to see all the lies around you. You begin to see the hypocrisies. You begin to see how truth is sculpted and how narratives are built. You begin to see people betraying one another, people lying to one another, people lying to you. And then you think to yourself, what's happening to the world? The world is getting corrupt as I'm growing older. When in reality, the world was always like that. You were just sheltered from it. And I think that that experience from childhood to uh, adulthood is paralleled in the larger meta-narratives of time that you see in various mythologies, whether the Indian one, the Hebrew one, the Greek one, even within histories as well, within specific histories. So the late Romans used to look back at the Roman Republic and the early Romans and say, those were virtuous men. The, those were truly the great Romans. The same way people today look back at the greatest generation, quote unquote, right? Or they look back at the early founding fathers and they say, those were the truly virtuous men of yore. When in reality, the sordid reality is that people have been of mixed character for all time. And that has not changed, you know? That's absolutely true. And I think, and I agree with it, that that kind of golden ager idea that everything must have been better in the past. I think that that's true. And I also wonder if there's an aspect of seeing the way we experience lies change, makes it feel more intense. So we're in an age where if you point very publicly to a politician lying, you can either ignore it as a politician or you can say, no, it's not a lie. Whereas in the past that spread differently and there were different ways that news could, you know, fewer news uh, institutions, less obviously spreading lies. And I wonder if for Raleigh and Montaigne being at this relative shift in literacy and in ideas spreading a little more rapidly at the beginning of Gutenberg the, and the press, the printing press. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I wonder if that, to some extent, is driving them into thinking that, that they are seeing it manifesting in a different way, in part because the, the Montaigne essay, fascinatingly enough, begins with sort of justifying for the hundredth time why he's writing about himself as, you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm nobody, only right. people who've done incredible things. 
And he's he's writing early on, well, these great men of the past, they were all virtuous. And it reads as tongue-in-cheek, mm. as if he knows that, you know, the past greatness is not everything that at times we treat it as. But, you know, it's it's in part because it's translated into English from from 16th century French. It's it's kind of hard to tell if it's translation or in the original, but there is this kind of note of skepticism about that. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about this poem before we turn to the uh, silly portion of the recording? No, let's uh, let's get silly. Before we get to the game, we do have an ad. Has this ever happened to you? You have a single-minded, murderous obsession with a beast that serves an enormous symbolic purpose. Say, for example, a pesky whale. But no clothing stores know how to suit your style. Are you a grand, godlike man who nevertheless has his humanities, yet no shop sells your fashion? Then come on down to the Ahabadashery. They have everything you need, from alienated narrators to weapons that can be interpreted as phalluses. Are you tired of overpaying for two shoes when you just need one? We accommodate all piratical peg legs, especially those made of whale jawbone. We'll help you show off your gams. And for all of your shopping needs, the Ahabadashery has many catalogs. Seize the day and trust the Ahabadashery, where we will deck you out and at an affordable price. After all, we always have sales. So come on down where we will style you for your murderous revenge. And if you're a little tired and need a boost, great news. Every Ahabadashery location is right next door to a Starbucks. But it's time for us now to play a game. And today we're playing a game I'm calling Fancy Duds. I'm going to give you the name of a poetic form. And there's a trick. Some of these are real and some of them are fake. So your job is to tell me which ones are real and which ones are fake. And as a bonus, if you want... You can invent a form for the fake terms just right off the top of your head. You don't have to do that, but it's a possibility. Amit Majmadar, are you ready to play a game? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Number one, Paradell, real or fake? Real. Yes, it is invented by Billy Collins. I'm not going to go through explaining it because it's so detailed. <laughs> Number two, Tripsy, the Tripsy. No, false. All right. You're you're already doing better than than a lot of people. I've, I'm finally getting a handle on the difficulty level of the games. They started out either way too easy or way too difficult. Number three, the Baiku. Well, that's a tough one because obviously it's playing on haiku. And is it possible that in the fullness of time, somebody created a, like two haikus one after another and called it a Baiku? A haiku about bikes could be a Baiku. So I can't rule out that some poet at some point or another has played with the haiku and turned it into this particular form, but I will say that I've never heard of it, so I'm going to say fake. Yes. In my very cursory Googling, I found no no poems <laughs> with the haiku. Did you want to, by the way, ex come up with a quick form for Tripsy or uh, the baiku? Oh, like a baiku would be two haiku about biking. Okay. And a tripsy would be a poem uh, written in alternating lines of dactylic meter and spondaic meter. So you'd be right? So you then you trip you trip in the second line. Wow. 
I, I have to now move that from the fake category to the real category. That's fantastic. Real now. Yeah. I agree. I Let's go. The ult- Give me all your fake ones and I'll come up. I like that. That's fun. I'll I'll, uh, I'll come up with fake uh, forms for each of these, the fake names. Oh, we've, I think you're going to enjoy some of these that we come up with. By the way, the only alternate for Baiku, I think that really you have the best idea, but I did in part because I visited with my wife's family over last weekend and they're Southern. So there's no such thing as a short goodbye. And so I imagine that rather than having brevity, the Baiku would be the sort of long goodbye that somehow Ooh, never yeah. knows how to get out of itself. A valedictory poem. Yeah. A validation. Number four, diminishing verse. Uh, I feel like, I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily a form. It's certainly a a description of what happens to poems after I publish them. <laughs> they uh, <laughs> they diminish into nothingness. No, but that's not uh, a form. It's emotion. <laughs> that's a, and exactly uh, tell time it is but motion. Uh, no, I'm going to say fake. That is actually real. Uh, it's uh, the yeah. main rule is this that you remove the first letter of the end word in the previous line. So line one, well, the example is it ends with grad. Line two ends with rad, and then line three ends ad. Oh, okay. So, not I'm not particularly excited about that as a form, but number five, a flap doodle. I've heard of that. I I flap doodle. You know, I I shouldn't say real because I have no idea what it is if it is real, but I know I've heard of a flap doodle, some point or another. So far so as I, say, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I'm gonna say real. I'm gonna say real. Uh, so far as I know, it's not a poem. The word that has stuck in my head from wherever I've heard it. And I, oh, and I love it. that's what happened there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You want to offer okay, a so form? It, so it is a word. It's a word. It's just not a poem. Exactly. All right. So do you want to offer well, up I guess a form? A doodle, no, a flab doodle would basically be a um, a visual poem okay. that it's basically you, you uh, doodle and then you have to write a poem in the shape of the uh, doodle basically so it's a visual poem i like that. i like that a lot my the thing that popped into my head was a comic erotic poem but that's Nothing less thing. specific and i think less interesting got a few more here the clogger knock clogger knock clogger knock clogger knock is a scottish form it is uh basically consists of uh it's 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 basically a poem uh like related to like uh drinking basically it's a scottish drinking poem yeah that's exactly right it's it's maybe welsh according to one thing that i read are you kidding me i made that up well the drinking part is the stretch but clogermach or clogernock it's welsh and it is a specific stanzaic form it's a six line syllabic stanza with an a b okay. rhymes game so- Dude. I literally made that up. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw this guy a curveball well, and make it up as if it's like, because I, I thought I, <laughs> all right, okay, yeah. all right. The drinking well, at least I located it to the correct uh, country. Yeah, the British Isles. Absolutely, ne- very nicely done. That's that's an impressive. You faked me out. I'm giving you the lie. <laughs> uh, number seven, the bob and wheel. Yeah, that's real. Yeah, that's that's it. Comes at the end of every uh, stanza in. Uh, Sir Gawain and the Green, like those those types of pearl poets, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, all that stuff. They have a bob and wheel at the end. Yeah, nicely done. I have uh, two more, no three, okay. three more. One of which I have to thank my f- uh, friend Nick for drawing my attention to. This is not that one. The wither, the wither. 
You know, I I if it's real, I certainly never heard of it. So I'm just gonna say that it's fake. It is fake. It is fake. My wife has been spending a lot of time with horses, so I've heard the wither the word withers so many times. Mm. Uh no well, a wither a wither would be uh basically uh similar to that other poem that you mentioned, diminishing verse. Mm-hmm. Um would be a, a poem in which basically begins with um, 14 uh, syllables, basically iambic septameter, and then it goes down to iambic hexameter, iambic pentameter, and a tetrameter, uh, a trimeter, dimeter, and then a single iam at the, at the end. It withers away. It withers away. That makes perfect sense. I like that. Number nine, the bloody yell. Bloody yell. Um, I'm gonna say fake. It is fake. My uh, my friend Nick uh, made that up to the point <laughs> to the point that when when he sent it to me, he he gave it to me very deadpan, straight face. He said, "You're probably not familiar with it, but the bloody L." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, you know the bloody the bloody L. The bloody L is a poem that has to be written in uh, slang or vernacular. That's the first criterion of the form, and it has to be." Uh, it has to have a refrain that basically sets up. It sets up a refrain like a villanelle, basically. Mm-hmm. But um, at the last stanza, you have to completely botch it, so that your reader says, "Bloody hell, this isn't a villanelle." That's perfect. That's great. And you can imagine with the difficulty of something like a villanelle that the writer says that as well when they just can't get it to right. work. Because the writer's saying bloody L in his head the whole time that he's writing the villanelle, right? Exactly. I have a colleague who once said, oh, I, I asked my students to write villanelles because, you know, you really only have to come up with two good lines and then you work around that. And I think, well, they have to be so good, though. <laughs> I know. So. I know. And, and to be honest with you, like, there's that one villanelle by Dylan Thomas that worked. And generally, they don't really work too well. No. I mean, I... I and, and I think... Yeah, it's it's it was meant for music anyway. I mean, it's like it's kind of like like a I think it was meant for music. Uh, you know, in old France, like troubadour times or whatever. Like they they would play it with music. It was like a refrain for a song. Like it doesn't really work, to be honest with you. I don't think it works. There's that one example that works, <laughs> and then and, and everyone's like, oh, I'm gonna write a villain. I said, like, why are y'all writing villanelles? Like it, I don't know. I like one art. Now I'm now I'm gonna be compelled to try and do it in some success. I'm trying to make a success of it. And I'm gonna bang my head against the the wall doing it. Well, that's the thing is every time I'm like, well, no one can write a good villanelle. It's like the thing from Arrested Development. Oh, when couples try open relationships, it it never ever works. They convince themselves it'll work, but it never does. But it just might work for us. That's that's the mindset. Yeah, I know. Uh, so. And the last one, a cascade poem. Cascade poem. I'm gonna say. Ooh, that's a tough one because I feel like I can mentally visualize that right now, although I've never heard of it. But I feel like someone may have come up with a cascade poem at some point. So I'm going to say true. It is real. Apparently, what you do is you take each line from the first stanza of a poem, and each one of those lines becomes the final line of each successive stanza. So, yeah, I find really interesting, but that takes us to the game. Um, Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to mention or plug before we go? Well, what do I have to plug? Um, I got, can I just talk about the books I have coming out in 2024? Absolutely. Listeners. Okay. So I got 
uh, a book called The Great Game coming out uh, from Acre Books, which is um, a book of uh, these literary essays, more or less. Some of them are on general topics. Others are on specific writers. Then I have a book called Remetamorphoses coming out, which is a, which is a book where it consists of three sections. The first section is a prose retelling, uh, sorry, is a prose version of the fall of man uh, based on the uh, Sufi interpretation of the Quranic version of the fall. Then the second is called Creon Pilot, which is basically a screen poem, like a poem written for the screen as a screenplay. And it has, it's this surreal juxtaposition of the stories of basically the gospel story and the story of Antigone. And it focuses not on Jesus and Antigone so much as Creon and Pilate and what it's like for them to be in the position of power having to deal with these rebels, specifically Antigone and Jesus. And then the third is called metamor the third section is called Metamorphoses, which is where I take uh, Hindu myths of transformation uh, from Hindu mythology, and I tell them in the way that Ovid told Greek and Roman myths of transformation. Only I do it where every verse paragraph is in a different form and a different type of uh, you know, alliterative verse or triolets or uh, blank verse or this or that. And I, I vary it each time. Each, each verse paragraph is in a different form. And that's coming out from Orizon Books um, next year. And then I have the second volume, if for, and this is in India, but you can, I guess you could theoretically get it from Amazon. I have the Book of Discoveries, which is the second volume of my Mahabharata retelling, which is coming out in, in India. Um, the first volume came out this year in India. It's called The Book of Vows. Also next year in India, I have a book called The Later Adventures of Hanuman coming out, which is where I invented 40 stories for Hanuman, kind of in the modern world, kind of after the action of the epic, after the main characters of the epic pass on. And he is immortal. And so he is sort of blessed, like blessed or cursed, whatever you have it, but he's he is he lives on into the future and into the modern world. And so it's all about what kind of adventures that he has after the epic is over and it's just him. And uh, and that's kind of written for younger readers, kind of maybe, you know, teenage readers. Um, and so there's that. And then uh, what else? And then I have a poetry collection coming out from my usual poetry publisher, Kanaf. They're backed up, so they signed it, but they're gonna they were, we're gonna release it in uh, 2026, which is a long time to wait. But I'm gonna I got some other stuff that I'm gonna try and send out there. So hopefully 2025 won't be empty, but we'll see. Thank you so much. That's you've given everyone an enormous reading list and a little bit of jealousy. <laughs> so thanks everyone for listening. If you do enjoy the show, please subscribe and leave a five star rating. And written reviews help the show out a lot. Go have a great day, read some poems, pet some dogs, and support striking workers wherever you find them. And give the world the lie. And, yeah, oh, yeah. That, I should have added that. Say that at the end. You should say that at the end. That's true. And give the world the lie. So there. There, <laughs> I have it. I can edit it. Into- there. <laughs>